handsomely young man who grew up with uh, his mother, single mother. He only knew his father later in life. And as he grew up, uh, there were times when he and his mother uh, went to church. And for one period of their lives together, uh, they went to church at a large church in their town, which was not this town. And they uh, consistently made a pattern of this. The pastor of this large church took an interest in them and uh, began to minister to them and uh, noticed that they needed a new car and said, you know, I can sell that car for you and then you can buy a new one, which he did. He sold the car for them and kept the money. That was that. Knew a young woman many years ago who worked uh, in a youth group and at the pool parties in this youth group, the youth pastor that she was serving with would broke the young women in the pool. She saw that and as she got married and got older and had uh, some marital difficulties, another pastor of the same church took advantage of her in the midst of marriage counseling. I want to talk with you about a very serious issue that confronts us as a church. I have described two terrible things that happen to people from church leaders to pastors. I have not even scratched the surface of what I hear from people about family life, family friends, abuses of various kinds related to the church and sometimes in the very name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am not scratching the surface of how this has impacted them emotionally, what they live with, um, what they struggle with. Um, but I can tell you this, that we are seeing people leave church life entirely in droves. This has been happening for a number of decades. It has been silent crisis in the life of the evangelical church in the United States, and uh, it is something that captured my attention many years ago, and that has been at the center, really, of my work as a pastor. It has been something that I have been working on, and I finally saw some statistical evidence that matched what I was witnessing in church work and on the front lines, and that is that the Chico Wedding Region is the 11th largest de-churched region in the United States. You say, what does that mean? A de-churched person, and this is coming from George Barna's lengthy, long-term research on this subject. His word, de-churched, refers to somebody who perhaps grew up in church, but in any case, had a pattern of church attendance that was steady and long-standing, but has dropped out of church 
not gone to church in uh, many months. We, Chico Redding, are the 11th most de-churched region in the United States. We are more de-churched than Portland, Oregon. We are more de-churched than New York City. What does that mean? It means that 41% of our population has dropped out of church. They were in church. They were regular in church. They dropped out. Now, I look at these numbers, and basically, I, I recognize those anecdotally from what I have seen uh, in over the years in ministry and pastoral counseling and in church growth. Much of the growth that I have seen in this church, I'll talk about this in a moment, in previous churches, uh, whether here or in Oregon, has been from what Barna now describes as de-churched people. Um, so I think when you look at these kinds of numbers, you can recognize this is pretty bad. We're trying to reach our community for Christ. We're not even keeping the people we've got. This number, by the way, does not include the famous unchurched. Those who are unchurched are those who have never had any pattern of church attendance, no church background whatsoever. That has been the category of people who have obsessed evangelicals for the last 30 years. And in this town, there have been so many attempts to apply the church growth methodology to reach the unchurched. So the numbers we're talking about here do not include the fact that we are the seventh most unchurched region in the United States. More unchurched than Portland, Oregon. More unchurched than New York City. If you put the 54% of unchurched people together with the 41% of our population who are de-churched, what we're looking at is the reality that we are now in already. Forget about looking ahead at the future. Right now, we are in a post-Christian region of the United States. If you look at the, the list of the top 20 most unchurched and de-churched uh, areas in the nation, you'll find that the large territory, roughly from San Francisco and the Bay Area, running all the way up the West Coast to Canada, is unchurched and de-churched, and we are right in the middle of it. This means that um, whatever you think is going on in our country right now, if you think that we are in a fight about health care, think we're in a fight about the economy, about anything political? Do you think we're in a fight about race? If you think we're in a fight about um, sexuality, I'm here to tell you that none of those things are the center of our problem. 
decimation of our colonies and communities. The fight we're in is very simple. Will there be Christian witness on the West Coast? Will it exist at all? This has been disappearing, weakening, shrinking for decades. And we are now at a point where the battle is essentially over, although I'm going to argue that the state of the battle right now gives us one of the biggest opportunities we've got as a church. So I want to put before you um, this idea that um, if we're looking at the de-churched and saying people who have left churches and have not gone back are spiritual backsliders, they're hard-hearted, they're probably not even Christians, they, uh, they're not with us, they're disloyal. If that's the attitude we're going to take toward the de-churched, then we are missing something very significant about our opportunity here. Because in my opinion, in my judgment as a pastor, the de-churched in leaving church life are making a rational decision that makes sense, even though it's a mistake. Given what people are confronting in the churches today, whether it's abuse of power from leaders, or whether it's um, passing over abuse in families, or whether it's um, just something simple like incoherent sermons, the suffocating superficiality of church life that is so focused on continual activities and programs and never seems to get to the nub of the heartache and the need for repentance and change in people's lives. If it's any of those things, anybody who says, I've had enough, I'm going home on Sunday mornings, and I'm not going back. Anybody who says that, I don't agree with them. They're making a mistake, but I understand them completely. Now, let's talk about our opportunity with the de-churched. The de-churched are many of you. Many of you have made the decision in the past, I'm leaving, I'm not going back. And then, said, no, I think I've made a mistake here. I've got to find a way back into church life. Not so much church life. I need to find a community of people around me who know the Lord, love Him, and can help me grow. I can grow with them. I need this. But where is it? And many of you, at that moment, or at a similar moment where you're, you're saying, I'm about ready to put pain into this whole church thing, Some of you as a last-ditch effort to rescue some kind of community connection with the Lord. And so what I think our opportunity is, very simply, to become a church that understands this problem and can be a source of healing for 
this problem. I want to talk with you about many of your own experience. We're not going to talk about all of the unchurched because it's a big category. There are all kinds of reasons why people have left churches. Not all of them right, fair, just. Many of those reasons are hard-hearted. It is very true. But I want to talk with you about that significant slice of the de-churched who have decided in their heart of hearts, I need to return. And I don't know how. I don't know what to do. I don't even think it's going to work. All I know is I need to go back. That's our opportunity. Those are our people. Because that's many of you. Our opportunity is to become a church that offers healing for those who have decided at one point or another in their life, this is too much for me. I can't deal with this anymore. So what we're going to do here over the next four weeks is a kind of wisdom lab. We've been studying the topics of wisdom for the better part of 18 months or so. And what we're going to do now is say, this is not a drill. We need urgently God's wisdom to become a healing church. We've got to have it. If we don't, and if no other church does, we know how this battle is going to end in California. And it's not going to be pretty. So, we need it, and we're going to seek it. We're going to devote the next four Sundays to training to heal from God's wisdom, saying, Lord, give us the tools to accomplish this. And we're doing this now because in September, I have in my preaching series, in September and October, I'm going to speak directly to these folks. I'm not going to call them de-churched. I'm not going to say, hey, all you people who hate churches, come here. Hang on us for a while. You know, they're not going to give you that kind of invitation. That would be insulting. We're just going to say there are big issues with church. There are big struggles that we have, that I have, with disillusionment. And so that's the issue we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the power and role of the Holy Spirit and the need for a reformation around the doctrine and ministry of the Holy Spirit in our church and in the evangelical church at large in our country. So we're going to talk about these topics, and we're going to say in a very direct way, there's healing for you. There is a future for you. There is a community for you that understands what you've been going through, suffering through church. We want to open our doors and our arms, and we want to receive you with the power of the Holy Spirit. So we need to be ready for that, and I need you to be on the same page about what our mission and our opportunity is in this regard. And so we're going to start this morning by saying, if there are people who need healing, they have been sinned against. We need to understand the offense We need to understand something of the nature of what we're dealing with. We need to confront that in God's wisdom. And then I'm actually going to give you a profile 
from what I have seen over the last 20 years. Who are these de-churched people who have decided I need to go back? Who are they? What, how do we? How should we understand them? How should we look at them? So that's what we're going to do this morning. And our text is Proverbs 18 and verse 19. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. Let's talk about this verse, and let's talk about the walls that it describes. Um, it's yet God's wisdom toward what we face. Very simply, we face brothers and sisters offended. Now, I am open to the fact that many of these folks were unfortunately caught up in what we might call churchianity, the institutional life with Christ, without a direct knowledge of Christ. They may not be saved. They may not be brothers and sisters in that sense. But what we need to understand is these were close people, insiders. These were not outsiders. And they were offended. A brother offended. This is not a stranger offended. This is not someone who just happened to be passing by and saw a church do something that was a little uh, off-kilter and it offended them. It hurt their feelings. It made them mad. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a brother, a close, inside person offended. That's the subject of this little proverb. And we get a couple of pictures, both having to do with walls, um, of what a brother offended is like. First of all, a brother offended is unyielding, more unyielding than a strong city. You think about a strong city in Solomon's day. What did that mean? It meant a wall. Uh, when we were on the coast a couple of weeks ago, we went to Fort Ross. Have you ever been there? Ross, kind of a neat old place, and uh, so you walk around there, and you're basically coming up to a stockade. It's a wooden, built wall that runs a big square or rectangle or some, something like that, and it, it is the defense that if you are inside the walls, you have a protection against anything that might attack you from the outside. So you go inside the stockade, and there's cannons in there. They don't work, but they're there. And then there are places where you can, there's an armory, and you can, you can rush in there and grab your rifle, and you can get shot for the cannon, and you can go up into a tower, and you can, from that position of defense, you can strike out against anyone who's attacking you. So this is saying a brother offended is more unyielding than a stockade. Well, that's not really the picture here, because face it, Fort Ross, you just burn the thing down and we're done. That, that, that stockade is, is finished. So that's, it's not so great. It, it offered some defense, but, and, and a lot of brothers are like that. They have a stockade around them. It's not the strongest resistance but their barriers are up, their guard is up, and they're not feeling particularly safe. But it's not like they've hardened. 
targets that are hearts against you. But still, you notice that those barriers are there. Um, maybe the picture here is more like Jerusalem. You've seen photographs of Jerusalem and the wall that is around Jerusalem. You can read about David building up those walls. You can read about uh, other kings building up towers, and, and you can read about Nehemiah coming along, rebuilding those walls, and then you can look at photographs where there's this massive stone wall all around the city. Now that's what Solomon's talking about. He's talking about a strong city that is up on a high place, so in order to attack it, you have to go uphill. That's the whole point of this, make, make the attacker work hard. And then once you get uphill, you're facing a stone barrier. And there are people doing unpleasant things to you from the top of that stone barrier. Now, you may say, okay, I know some people like that. There are brothers offended, brothers and sisters offended. They've got a strong stone wall around them. They're isolated behind that wall. They've retreated to a high place, and they are just waiting for you to come up against them. And they have fully garrisoned those towers and those walls, and they will fight you if you come up against them. They're just ready to go. They are unyielding. So maybe it's Fort Ross. Maybe it's Jerusalem. Maybe it's Minas Tirith, where it's not just one wall. And it's not just one high place. It's wall after wall after wall after wall going up sheer rock. And you penetrate one of those walls. And maybe you get through that part, but you've got 12 more to go. I would put it to you, the de-churched are not unyielding like Fort Ross. They're not unyielding like Jerusalem. They are unyielding like ministerial. It's wall after wall after wall. Some of those walls are built up because the offense against them has been traumatizing. A level of abuse and character assassination betrayed trust. Um, sometimes the walls are simple bitterness against someone who hurt their feelings at one time. That, that is out there. But what we're talking about is someone who was inside the church and then was wounded so badly that they said, I'm out of here and I'm not coming back. And then the Lord works on their hearts and they decide, you know, maybe I do need to return, but how am I going to back, go back? Well armed, that's how. Walls. They are unyielding like a strong city. Solomon is saying here, by the wisdom of God, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if you want to address things in a healing way, you've got to understand something. That an intimate offense yields, uh, it creates an unyielding resistance to everything that you do. You need to really be 
get your hands around the nature of the problem. So as we face the, the reality of being the 11th most de-churched region in the country, we've got to face the fact that 41% of the people out there are brothers, intimates, even if they never were saved. They were close and offended. We've got to face up to the unyielding nature of that. The second thing, the second line in this proverb is interesting. Remember, a proverb is a riddle. It is not a statement. It is something you have to work on. So, in the first line, it says, A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. So you would expect in the second line, comparing the two synonymously, you would expect the second line to say something like, and a, a wounded intimate friend is like the bars of a castle. That's what you would expect, but that's not what we get. Solomon says, he changes the term of comparison. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling like the bars of a castle. So what is that saying? Well, if you're in that strong city and you've got that stone wall up, you still got to get in and out, right? You've got to go out and trade and got travel that you need to do, places to go, people to see. So there are gates in the wall that you can travel through. But then there are shut off those gates. And so, in that case, nobody's getting in and nobody's getting out. We will not let you in to talk to us because we don't trust you. We think you're up to no good and we don't like the look of you. So, we're lowering the bars and you're not getting in. Also, we're not going out. We're not going to emerge from our fortress to talk with you because we're keeping ourselves in. That's a quarrel. That's what quarreling does. We have a decision before us. As a church, as Christians in California, we have a decision. And here's the problem. It's a decision we've already made, and we've got to unmake it and fast. We have decided to quarrel outside the church. Bicker with them. Fight them. Trade insults. Argue about all sorts of symbolic issues that have nothing to do with real life. Argue about issues on the other side of the country that have nothing to do with our face-to-face interaction. And we're just going to trade shots about all of that kind of stuff. Whether it's politics or culture war stuff or philosophy, education, whatever it may be, we've got all of these quarrels that we have raised up against the people outside. And basically what Solomon is saying is if you've offended a brother, they are more unyielding than a strong city. And the more you quarrel with them, the more the bars go down and they are locked fast. No one gets in no one gets out. We have decided to 
that's as good as slandering the name of the Lord. The second thing that is terrible about how this is going in our quarrel with the outside world is it's hardening us. We're getting worse, not better. We are less able to have a discussion with someone we don't agree with than we were 20 years ago. It's just a fact. And so, all of these things are happening. The decision before us as a church at this time, in our place, is are we going to continue this quarrel? Are we going to say to those who have suffered wrong at the hands of the church, we want to argue with you. We want to tell you that the wrong you suffered is not our fault. We want to tell you that the wrong you suffered was not wrong. We want to just—we want to tell you all about your pain and why it's happening, and we want to define you and label you and give you medication, and then we want you basically to surrender. That's what a quarrel is. It's out of control and it's laced with insults. We've decided what we're going to do. That's how we're going to approach this. We need to reverse that decision. And say, you know, a brother offended is unyielding. That's life. Nothing's going to change that. That's what we're dealing with. We're either going to face that fact and change the way we're operating and the way we think about the people around us. Or... We're just going to continue to throw soldiers up against that stone wall and watch them die. We're going to continue to send arrows, like points of argument and memes on Facebook. We're just going to shoot and shoot and shoot and watch it just bounce right off and accomplish nothing. We need to unmake this decision and fast. We need to stop quarreling especially with those who have dropped out of church but who know in their heart of hearts God's calling me back. What do I do? So, um, let me pause here because we've got a couple of questions. Those quarrels that I am describing are what create unnecessary war and those in those wars, there is no winner except to go back to God. I uh, agree with that. Um, a lot of our public discourse today is just about symbolism and perceived insults. And, uh, you know, you've insulted my honor and my place and my intentions and my this and my that. You've done me dishonor, so I'm going to return that tenfold. What does that sound like? Jesus? Sounds more like Cain. Sounds more like Lamech. Cain's son boasted about vengeance. Um, So there is no winning in these kinds of wars. Um, Is it okay to take offense? Are there certain things that we should take offense over? Is there, in other words, a righteous sense of taking offense? Yes, there is. Show me somebody who is never offended by anything 
I'll show you somebody who has no sense of right and wrong, no boundaries for being walked over, and has no ability to do anything about it. Doormat. You can't be that. Um, and so I, part of where this question is coming from is, <clears throat> isn't it right that people would be offended by a pastor who takes advantage of a woman in marriage counseling? right to be offended by that. We are. Wouldn't we be offended by somebody groping kids? Yeah, we should be. Shouldn't we be offended by theft, financial fraud, violence, abuse of power? Yeah, I think we should. Now there's a question. What do you do with that offense? But if we're talking about the young man I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, this young man growing up with a single mother, and he's going to a church with his mother in an act of trust that that church is going to treat him the way a church ought to treat him. That trust is betrayed. What is he supposed to do with that? Where, Who has taught him where to take an offense and how to do anything with it? Nobody. So are we going to quarrel? that guy and say, oh, you're just one of those millennials. He's the whipping kids now, the millennials. Um, well, okay, but who raised the millennials? What about that? Okay, I just went from preaching to meddling. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So, let's, let me escape from what I just did give you my profile of who these people are, because I think we've got the wrong picture. The de-church who know in their heart of hearts, I need to go back. Who are they? Three things that I have found these folks to be. First, earnest. If you think that these people are cynical, jaded, if you think these are the postmodern relativists who don't believe in absolute truth anymore, that's who you think they are, you're going to make serious mistakes in the way you deal with these folks. These people have a strong, deep, abiding conviction about right and wrong. They know it's absolute because they have experienced wrong. They know what that is. And we'll talk about this in a moment. What they're trying to figure out is, what is right? I know what wrong is. Wrong is that, what I experienced back there, whether it's in my family or whatever it may be. Um, I have found in talking to these people, and again, I, when I say this, I'm talking about the project of my life as a pastor, not a preacher necessarily, but a pastor interacting with people. So what I'm saying to you, I'm saying out of more than 20 years of talking with people in this category, these are earnest people. These are people who have strong beliefs. Their problem is not that they're jaded. Their problem is they don't know how to resolve the wrong that was done to them. They don't know what to do with it in relation to God. Now, if there's someone coming to you or coming to us as a church, and by the way, this is many of 
I've experienced. And if you then reply to earnestness by quarreling, I think you see the problem. So what would be quarreling in that case? Well, this is actually your fault that this happened. You should have done this, this, and this, and this. Well, uh, you shouldn't paint all churches with this brush. We're not all at fault. We're not all like this. You shouldn't blame Jesus for this. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. You ought to. You ought to. Is that how we reply to earnest people? That's simply not respectful. For us to be healing, we need to get alongside the earnestness and say, what you have experienced was I have experienced some of those same things. And I have been disillusioned in many of the same ways. And I have. And so let's let's earnestly together build a sincere way of working on this problem shoulder to shoulder. And that means, leads to the next quality in this profile, These people are very focused. They are not closed to the gospel. They are not hardened against it. These are some of the most open people I know. But they're very focused. And they're not going to get off the subject. They are not going to leave the problem that they are working on. And I can tell you what that problem is in broad strokes. Who is God? Really? Because the way church, family, or some mixture of that portrayed God to me is messed up. And if God is that way, and if you're going to defend a God who is that way, who is mean, insulting, abusive, controlling, power hungry, if you're going to defend that God, I'm out of here. That's not the problem I'm working on. This is very important for us to understand. In my experience, we're talking about people who, in formative years of their life, have had their view of God and their very, their very moral vocabulary twisted around. And so I can, I saw this early on as a preacher. I would preach sermons about the grace of God. And about half the congregation would say, yep, that's the grace of God. And the other half would be dead silent. And I would probe that silence. What's behind that silence? Because what I heard on Sunday was condemnation, death, smell was the fragrance of death, legalism, all of that. And I'm sitting there as a young pastor thinking, that's not what I preached. That's not what I said at all. I was talking about the grace of God. I was talking about forgiveness. I was talking about no condemnation. How did you receive this other message? I've engaged with this, the clearer it has become that many people have had their vocabulary twisted around so that they can't.
Satan is. He can quote scripture, and he does. He uses the mouth of accusers to do it. Beloved, this is what we're up against. And if we keep quarreling with it, it only gets worse. The bars and the gates go down. No one gets in. No one comes out. But if we say, nope, we're going to stop this quarrel, we're going to start taking the approach of healing toward this. If we start doing that, then maybe we'll see the gates come back up. And maybe we'll have a short parley there. The medieval word, short negotiation, right there in the gatehouse. We will talk a little bit under the white flag, and they will go back in, and we will go back out. Short conversations, healing conversations. We will rebuild trust so that the gate doesn't go back down. But maybe the gate stays up. And then maybe the walls are not garrisoned so forbiddingly. And then maybe we can get through the gate. Maybe we can uh, share that strong city with them. Because it becomes yielding instead of unyielding. I am here to tell you that even though I am saying maybe, I am actually not saying that at all. This is God's will for us right now. It is God's will that we engage with this process because it is the call of the gospel. It is God's will because it is his wisdom that a soft answer turns away wrath. It is God's will because those who make peace are blessed. From the mouth of our Savior himself. So, um, we need to rethink who these folks are. They are earnest, not jaded. They are focused, not closed. And the third thing is, I have found them to be profoundly courageous. They are not lazy slackers. When you come back to church after having had a sense of betrayal hanging over you for years, when you make the decision, God is calling me back, I've got to figure this out. When you do that, and many of you have done that, and you're here right now, for you to do that was a conscious and deliberate risk of incredible magnitude. Basically, you were saying, I'm going to walk back into the den of snakes where I was bit before. I'm going to go back in there. I'm going to get triggered by all the same old stuff. I'm going to try to figure this out. I would encourage you to take time as you begin to know these folks. Take time to admire the courage of their coming at all and coming back and coming back and back and back. Especially admire their courage when they come and they get hurt and they come back. That's who we're dealing with. We're not dealing in this group of people who have dropped out and said, no, that's not the answer I'm going back. And that's slow. 
church, we are not dealing with hardened, bitter, cynical people who just have no use for the church and are not listening. They're closed to the gospel. In fact, if you think that, God help you. Because we, we will miss this opportunity. And Christian witness will disappear in California. I think it's really that simple. I don't think it's going to be too much longer. I think we have time. I think the window is there, but it is closed. So the view of these people that we need to have is, you know, there are problems. There are very real problems. You can't go through what they've gone through without struggling with unforgiveness and bitterness and all of these kinds of things. But they showed up. They came back. They're working on this. I think I can have the courage to work on this with them. That's where we've got to be. Over the next several weeks, we are going to probe this further. We're going to talk about the kind of partnership we need to build with these folks. Uh, we will talk about how to do that. We'll talk about listening. We'll talk about answering, when to answer, how to answer, because there is a time for that. All of these things uh, we will discuss, but uh, at this moment, I want to just challenge you that there are, I believe, thousands of people in this region right now, in just in that slice of the de-churched, who have said, I left, but I need to go back. has mirrored what you've described, but I wonder if you'd agree with going a step further. Churchgoers often seem to have a standoffishness, an inconsistency, and a general disconnect between their real lives and their church lives, so that getting to know them is first
said here, where in, in our Bible studies early on here, we had people, uh, uh, someone criticizing uh, things like tattoos to, to people's face and saying it was ungodly, quoting Leviticus after it. And um, I do not to put too fine a point on it. I basically said, stop it or don't come back. That's not what this discussion is about. Um, that's that kind of front. Christians look this way. It's Anna Green Gables. See? No, they don't. Christians look messed up in my experience. Um, so I, I think that comment is right on the money. I once had a pastor who dealt with offended parties by saying, it's a choice to be offended. Case dismissed. What do you say? Um, yeah, it's a choice to be offended. Um, but uh, that's exactly the kind of thing that uh, is just calculated to send people running. difference between hurting someone's feelings and committing an offense against them and against God. And to be sure, there is a time to say, well, you've got a case here where somebody's feelings are getting hurt pretty constantly and there's another problem to deal with than my attitude toward that person. Okay, that, that's a real thing. There's oversensitivity. We're talking about abuse of power, lying, financial fraud, sexual abuse, guilt manipulation. These are offenses against the scriptures and against God. You cannot respond to cases like that and say, oh, was there a choice to be offended? I don't have to deal with it. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. So, um, that's a very good question. Um, how many times... Should I forgive or ask forgiveness of my brother seven times? But do we even try to approach the person who has been deeply wounded by the church, or is this only for experts? Very good question. I am saying you have a role in this so that we together become a healing church. Because I can't do this. I can hit a two people. Well, he hits the wrong word. I guess he shouldn't say that. I can put my hand on the shoulder of a few people. I can't heal everybody. We need you to engage with the disposition of a healer. And when you hear these things, you say, this is what Pastor was talking about. God just appointed me the healer for this person. And I am going to seek wisdom about how to do that. I am going to be courageous enough to make mistakes and go back and ask forgiveness when I make mistakes or say wrong things. But I'm going to dive in and I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to do his ministry of healing through me. No, this is not for the experts. This needs to be the whole church. Very good questions. I hope you're excited about this because I am. Because you understand this do, and you are the church uniquely positioned to accomplish this healing of this community by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
excited to see what the Lord's going to do with us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have called us to be the church at a time of decline, decay, and crisis. When all around us we wonder, is anyone standing with us? We praise you that you have called us to this ministry at this time. We praise you because we know that in our extremity of need, you will pour out power and grace and goodness. We know it, and so we will engage with the task you have called us to do, and we will see your grace at work. Father God, revive us again. Lead us. Pour out your spirit upon your church so that once again we will see in our nation a revival 